God, uh, please open up your word to our hearts. Open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. Excellent. Well, this isn't a challenging chapter at all. Um, (laughs) Daryl was going to be preaching tonight. Um, but he covered for me pre- last week because I couldn't make it, and I'm covering for him, and I feel like I might have gotten the crunchier verse. Um, nonetheless, in the fashion to which we are accustomed, we'll break this passion down, uh, pa- this passion, this passage down into its parts. Um, we have some very alarming-sounding stuff here. The handing over to Satan part um, might throw up some red flags, and some fairly innocuous stuff in there, which is actually the most useful for teaching as well, which we'll arrive at uh, towards the end of this chapter. Um, But uh, we've just come off Paul finishing chapter 4, which is the end of chapters 1 to 4, which are kind of his uh, weighty introduction all about the false teachers he was worried about infiltrating the church and him uh, re-establishing his sort of uh, apostolic credentials, you know, that they needed to follow him, and uh, more specifically, that they're following the example he laid down, which is being faithful to God, and not just incorporating any random teacher who comes along with clever words. Um, he wants them to, to do better, he thinks they should know better, and that he taught them better. So now he starts telling the church about the, the instances that he's worried about, and we'll see it. there's more than, uh, more than one problem happening at the Corinthian church that he'll pick off as our study goes on, but we get this, uh, well, let's call it an incident um, that starts at verse one, and I'll read it again. It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And the one who is present with you in this, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. You. Um, okay, so there's a couple of ways to read this charge, but let's go with the most commonly accepted one, um, because the teaching is the same in all cases. This is talking about a gentleman and his stepmother. The NIV says he is sleeping. Uh, with her, which um, might make it sound like a charge of an affair, but uh, the ESV and some other translations more plainly put it that um, that the man has his father's wife. Um, and that terminology usually means to, to have a wife is to, is to marry a wife. Um, now the Corinthians and the, the Greeks, the, the Gentile cities in that time, didn't have multiple wives, so his own mother is out of the picture. His father has probably married someone else, probably a younger woman, possibly around his age. And uh, the middle-aged man has married this younger wife. The young wife and the stepson have some kind of romantic interlude. This causes marital tension, uh, <laughs> which is expected in that scenario. Now, in the ancient Greek culture, A woman could divorce her husband with the help of her father or a male relative. A husband could divorce his wife by simply literally pushing her out of the house and closing the door. Um, And under those circumstances, that may very well have happened, and we shouldn't be terribly surprised. But either way this happened, the stepson now has his father's wife. He's married her. So technically, it's not as gross as it could be, 
but that's not a huge consolation. <laughs> I'm trying to be honest with you. Um, God's pretty clear about this matter back in Deuteronomy 22.30. Uh, he says, a man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. Now, note, incidentally, the reason that God prohibits this particular union. Lots of commentators and, and studies that you may read uh, on this passage say things about it's, it's a sort of an incest thing. The, mother has a, the stepmother has a motherly role, and that shouldn't be mixed up in that way. Um, it's going to cause family tensions, all these very... Uh, practical sort of extrapolations, but um, and yeah, and certainly it's going to cause for a very awkward Christmas lunch. Um, these are all very good reasons, but God says through Moses, a man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. It's dishonoring to his father. Even if his father is deceased in this scenario, it's dishonoring. It's a kind of a humiliation to his memory. And we could technically analyze this relationship until we are blue in the face because technically there is nothing wrong with that, technically. They're not related. There's probably nothing weird about their ages. They've even done the right thing and gotten married. But there's an enormous disrespect there, a sacred line being transgressed, and it's dishonoring to his father. And in a lesser sense, we get a relatable example that you may see happening uh, in groups of friends. If you've witnessed a, uh, a situation amongst a friend group where uh, two friends have broken up and then one of them begins dating a mutual friend in that group, you know what this kind of disrespect is. Um, if you've been that awkward part of that triangle, you certainly know what it's like to be left out in the cold there. Oh, you guys are dating now. Of course I'm okay with it. That's fine. <laughs> There's a violation there, and between friends, it's hopefully something that people can muddle through, but to disrespect a parental bond in that way constitutes a genuine sin. And Paul's having none of it. And this is Paul, who is not exactly a big fan of divorce. This is Paul saying, no, 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 no. This cannot happen. Stop this immediately. And he goes on to pronounce a summary judgment as the leader of the Corinthian church in absentia. And here's where we go from Jerry Springer weird to supernatural weird. From verse 4. When you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Okay, this is a two-parter. Um, so what does it mean to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Uh, that's a very intense uh, phrase. Um, and why would this result in his spirit being saved in the day of the Lord? Why would this affect salvation is the idea here. Well, on first blush, this sounds pretty awful, the, uh, the handing over to Satan idea. Um, considering how vivid the spiritual reality was in that time and place in, uh, in Paul's ministry, casting out demons left and right, this might have sounded like Paul offering the church a policy in which sinners get kind of hurled out of the church with the invitation of supernatural horrors afflicting them until they reform. And the language is so dramatic for the destruction of the flesh. 
It's hard not to picture the classic red pajamas and pitchfork devil uh, poking away at someone locked out of a church with this verse. But really, we have a kingdom reality here with the church. This is an actual body of believers. It was for Corinth and it is for other churches following it. And being outside of that kingdom means that you're in the only other kingdom available, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. Satan being the prince of this world, the king of this world, means that really you're in the kingdom of God or you're in the other one. And so it's reasonable here to take this, this idea of, the, of invoking Satan's name, not as a specific instruction, um, but about the truth of the only alternative in the matter, that you're inside the body of believers, or you're outside and you're at the mercy of the enemy. And particularly flesh, as spoken of here, is the, uh, comes from the Greek word sarkos. It's the, the flesh in the sense of the morally accountable flesh. When we talk about the spirit opposing the flesh, this is the flesh we are talking about, the, uh, that from which uh, we receive temptation, that human instinct flesh. The alternative would have been soma, which is like the, the body, the physical shell of a person. That's not the thing that's being destroyed here. Paul paints a picture of casting this man uh, who is pretty pleased that he's carrying on a relationship with his stepmom um, out into the world where he'll no longer be sheltered by the blessing of God upon his people. And he'll no longer be sheltered by that from the consequences of his actions. So he will receive the destruction of the flesh. Now that's the destruction of the flesh like the judgment of God is judgment that comes from God. This is destruction that comes from the flesh. And then there's destruction and ruin that comes from a life under the whims of the flesh. This shows a very intense idea of what church actually is. If you've ever asked yourself the question, what is church? What is it for? If you've never asked that, I invite you to chew on that question this week. Because sometimes we think of church as a collection of saved individuals with no identity as a group of people. And then they're just individually connected to the same God. But Paul suggests that a body of believers has its own kind of identity. However it's defined, it has a kind of a supernatural fence around it. And being put outside of that fellowship is dangerous. Part of the reason that we gather together is to thank God for the protection that he pours over us when we assemble as a body of his people. And Likewise, uh, this is a reason it's so heartbreaking and often faith-breaking when a, uh, one who claims to be a believer or a couple decide that they right now don't have time to come to church or they want to be between churches for a while and they leave their old church, but they drag their feet finding a new one. The church is a, is a family, and it's a team, and it's a bomb shelter. And in times of war, you don't want to be without any of them. So Paul goes on to suggest that doing this may allow this guy to be saved on the day of the Lord. What is that supposed to mean? That casting him out of the church may actually lead to his salvation. Because this is an interesting teaching. And let's face it. The modern church is kind of bad at church discipline. And when I say the modern church, I mean the church in the West 
uh, all of us for the last 50 years or so. We're afraid if we hold someone too forcefully accountable for their actions, then they'll leave the church and maybe even leave the faith entirely. Maybe they won't even come back. And then it'll be our fault for not having been more tolerant. But what Paul says is actually that kicking this guy out of the church gives this chance that his spirit might be saved. As if being sheltered from the destruction of the flesh is actually doing him no favors. It's putting him in greater harm. In modern parlance, the church is enabling him. They are being enablers. They are making it easier for this fellow to become comfortable with the sin that he's engaged in and are in fact kind of celebrating him. To distill this even further into a, a form of a completely, oppo- a form completely opposed to our worldly wisdom, what this man needs is to be shamed and shamed for who he is because he is a man who is sleeping with his stepmother and that is shameful and if no one shames him, he will remain shameless. I hope we get more chances to talk about shame in depth later on because I am so pro-shame. I feel like we need more shame. But uh, now that we have this picture, we get the man needs to be removed from the Corinthian church and on the hope that the Holy Spirit will use that renewed vulnerability to guide him into an actual saving faith. It's not a pleasant option, but it's the best one that Paul leads the Corinthians to. But it's not just that it's good for the individual. Paul wants to deal with the Corinthian church and the fact that they are weirdly proud of having this sinful gentleman in their assembly from verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened by malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this might be my new favorite passage of Scripture because I love words and I love symbolism. And Paul uses the Passover feast to illustrate the church's responsibility to be diligent. And the sin is like the yeast that we need to get out of the dough so that the bread can be good and unleavened. Because it's time for the Passover feast and you need that bread and the lamb as part of that feast is Jesus. And I like this because the Passover feast commemorates the passing of the angel of death over Egypt during the the slaying of the firstborn back in Exodus when the Israelites were painting their door frames in the lamb's blood and escaping the wrath of God. You may have lost me already, but bear with me. But that event itself is a type, it's sort of a metaphor for salvation that God uses in history. It's pointing forward to the fact that Christ would die and be sacrificed for us. And it's under the blood of that lamb, the lamb of God, that we would escape his judgment. And so now Paul calls in the imagery of that symbol to make a new example about how the church should act and makes that a metaphor of his own. So to make that completely confusing, Paul gives his teaching through a metaphor of a symbol, of a type of Christ. 
and that's awesome. <laughs> but if you didn't follow that, then I suppose that you, unlike me, are not a huge nerd. But the point is actually very plain and clear aside from that sidetrack. If you tolerate flagrant, sinful behavior in the body of believers, it will corrupt the whole place. Once it ceases to be shameful living in sin, then people are going to do more of it. And by dividing this offender from the church, they remove that corrupt element. They remove the yeast, the leaven, that would otherwise leaven the remainder of the dough. This raises the question, if we're not supposed to tolerate sin in our midst, how are we supposed to bring people to church? Or more specifically, how are we supposed to invite someone to church if they're not, well, if we're not supposed to fellowship with people who are not morally upright and beyond reproach? But not everything in Scripture is written in deep mysteries, and some things are actually written right on the surface for us. And we get that from verse 9 on. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral and greedy and swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you would have had to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And that goes a long way to clearing that up. The moral standards are for inside the church, not outside. Which makes me wonder if the, the founders of the Amish movement before they moved away from civilization and decided that buttons were an example of technology run amok, um, read this passage and thought, yes, we would have to leave the world, wouldn't we? Hmm. But like before, there's two parts to this, uh, two questions to this to tease out. How much moral judgment do we, as Christ's body among the nations, direct at the world around us? How much judgment do we heap on those outside the church? That's the first question. How much do uh, saints heap on sinners? And secondly, what kind of judgment do saints heap on other saints? What standards of behavior do we impose in our community and the greater community of Christians? Because the church throughout history has had all kinds of opinions on these questions. From certain periods in medieval history where you could be killed for being on one side of a war singing psalms, or on the other side of the war singing songs of praise. And far at the other end of that, the very modern, extremely progressive churches where nothing is true and everything is permitted. As for the world, what kind of standards do we expect that the church has a right to impose on those outside the church? I come to an answer that I'm satisfied with, but this is the kind of question that every believer should wrestle with and come to a, a point of uh, comfort with their own conscience. We live in a society where the church is not an institution of the government. And every time an issue comes up politically in this country, we have to check in 
with this question. What role should the church play in making law? For example, because the Bible declares adultery to be a sin, should it be punished in the same way that we punish the sin of theft as a crime? Churches throughout history have struggled with this question. But this is a place that I think our denomination, particularly the Baptist churches, have had it right for a long time. Baptist history comes out of a period, particularly in England, where Catholics and Anglicans were chasing each other around in circles for a long time in persecutions. The king would die and then the other side would get in power and they'd go back the other way from Anglican back to Catholic. Now the the Hail Mary is in again and you go to jail if you don't say it right. Then the king dies and now we're all Anglicans again. So if you say the Hail Mary, you go to jail. Now the king is the head of the church. Now he's not and so on and so on. The Baptists did badly under both of these particular uh, styles of leadership because they didn't see the Pope or the king as the head of the church. But they developed this idea they call liberty of conscience. That is that the the king, the state, has the right only to judge between the crimes that men inflict on one another. But the crimes of conscience, that is how you go about baptizing, how how you conduct yourself, even to whom you pray, that's a matter for God to judge. And since the heart of Baptist belief particularly is that each of us are directly accountable to God with no one in between, having a king or a pope or anyone there didn't make sense. A certain amount of division between the judgment of moral matters, which is left for God, and the judgment of criminal matters is left for man. I like that system very much. I don't want people who cheat on their husbands or wives to be thrown into jail. I don't want them celebrated. That's a moral crime, and the offender is accountable to God. You may disagree. I encourage you to chew on that question too. Paul makes very clear, however, that within the church body, there is a certain amount of accountability that is expected of members to one another. And that goes beyond what we demand of those who are not believers. He says, as we read before, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, before we go any further, I would ask you to indulge me. Would everyone kind of look to the person on their left? Then to the person on their right? Statistically, both of these people are wicked. If we would apply this law to its most stringent possible reading, I'd have to ask you all to leave. And then someone would have to come back in and ask me to leave, and then I would also leave. (laughs) This isn't rocket science. Paul's example is that this man that he wants to cast out of the the Corinthian congregation is engaged in this outrageous sin, and he doesn't even have the decency to feel bad about it. He talks about the kind of people not to associate with the sexual immoral, the greedy, the idolater, the slanderer, the drunkard, the swindlers. He's not asking people to go ferreting through each other's lives for any trace of sin and then to hurl them out of the church. This is about the dangers of having someone who flaunts a sinful life in a way that shows plainly no regard for obedience to God. an alcoholic brother or sister who struggles, who periodically stumbles but earnestly repents and is trying to change and to become a better child of God is, of course, 
always welcome. Their struggle with sin is reflected in all our lives and all our struggles with our flaws and our temptations. But an alcoholic who showed no desire to change, who was proud of their habit, who showed up at church drunk and banging out his best Jimmy Barnes karaoke voice, handing out his Bundaberg rum promo mugs while crooning every week about how he left his heart to the sappers around K-San. This is not a deep philosophical question. A raving drunkard with no desire to change, obviously damaging to the church. Got to be put outside. A smug little creep who stole his stepmother from his own father's bed, obviously damaging to the church. Got to put them outside. Anyone who asks our Lord for forgiveness with a genuine heart will receive it. And we trust the Holy Spirit will be working in that person to convict and change them to be a better follower of God over time. This is sanctification. This is how God works in all believers. But blatant disregard for the word of God and for all God that, is, all God, that God has clearly stated in Scripture that shows the opposite. It shows that the Holy Spirit is not present and convicting in a person's life. And in that case, we do them and the church no favors by pretending they're in a right relationship with God. They don't need a loving and supporting church family at that time. They need the life-changing power of the gospel. And then a loving church family and nary t'other way around. Now, there is a dimension of complexity here that we would be remiss not to address. What about a believer who kind of feels bad but isn't showing any chance, but consistently holds out flagrant sin? And what about those who are somewhere between the quiet, repentant alcoholic and the Bundaberg run fan, always perpetually on the last plane out of Sydney? Line. How do we judge? Only God knows a person's heart and we pray that he works for his justice in them no matter the outcome. But these are not easy questions and they nonetheless require answers and action. Pastors, elders, church leaders have to draw these lines because the members of the church put them in that role. And as members, it's our duty to support, advise and hold accountable our leaders if we genuinely think they've made a wrong decision about someone excluded or someone left included in the church body. All of us are mortals operating as best we can under the grace of God, and may he have mercy on us all when we have to make these decisions. But Paul reminds us in chapter 5 of Corinthians that the church is not just a collection of individuals, it's a body of believers that needs unity and consistency. We cannot hold each other accountable to the scale of perfection. That's God's prerogative only, and only he has the power to get anyone there. But we owe those who have come before us in this church family and those who will come after us the decency of looking after our church community, helping those brothers and sisters who are in need and in the final analysis, even putting outside of that fellowship those who claim brotherhood but live in outrageous sin. We're in the kingdom of God, but we're not in paradise yet. Christ 
promises hard times before the good times. But what we do have now is a special blessing of God's presence, his care, his protection, his shield against the evil one, and his love that enhances our affection as a body of believers for one another. We have a duty to protect the body of the church and the privilege to be part of it. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you've given us the church. We thank you for the way that you've delivered all those who've put their faith in the sacrifice of your son. That you delivered them from the the punishment of those sins all at once. That we ask that you convict us by your spirit and give us strength to overcome the temptations and tendency to sin that nonetheless remains in our lives. And where it's necessary and nowhere else, we ask that you give us courage to protect our church from those who would taint or damage it. And we rely on you in this and your guidance in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.